Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Gore. Samantha Power, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Harvard professor, and US ambassador to the United Nations under President Barack Obama from 2013 to 2017, will discuss the current state of America and her recent fascinating memoir, The Education of an Idealist, with Anya Lawler, absolutely familiar broadcaster and journalist. Everyone knows who Anya is. This is our first event where our speakers are both virtually here. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that that all will go well. Samantha's coming to us virtually from Boston and Anya from Dublin. Uh, Enjoy the talk, thank you. Uh, Katrina, thank you uh, so much. And just to say what a pleasure it is to be here talking to you today, Samantha Power. Uh, Katrina's just listed off your CV there, which is so, by any standards, impressive. but in your book, the Ed- and I want to talk about you first before we talk about America and all the rest. Uh, in your book, The Education of an Idealist, you, you're so brutally honest about you, yourself professionally and personally. So why did you need to do that? Why did you need to be that honest and put that much out there about yourself and your learnings? Um, do you know the expression TMI? too much information uh there there is a a question when you when you write a memoir about where those lines exist and believe me there's plenty that's not in in the memoir but you know i because i think that particularly for women and younger women let's say who might be embarking on careers in whatever venue uh there's a feeling that you need to act like you've got your shit together at all at all times uh and acting as if is one of is part of the education of an idealist is that i think that's a good idea often but in order to make uh part of uh what i was seeking to do even professionally you know let's say to work in the field of human rights or to push American foreign policy in a different direction, or just to make a difference in one's community, for that to be accessible, I think the personal has to be accessible. You, 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 you know, we're not just these black boxes and these automated creatures, uh, you know, who identify a set of objectives and then identify the means to pursue those objectives and then full throttle ahead. You know, we have crippling self-doubt at times, many of us. And uh, to the degree that we uh, shroud that, then it makes those who have doubt, who aren't sure they can make a difference, who aren't sure whether they should raise their voice in the room, think all those other people, you know, have that confidence. So I thought if I opened Mm -hmm. it up, I make myself more accessible, but also frankly, the effort to make a difference something that more people can say, oh, I, I have I have a role to play too because I'm not disqualified 
because I don't have uh, a perfect plan or I'm not disqualified because I don't have perfect confidence. Uh, but it, it really surprised me to read all that about you because I like I interviewed you back in 2008 and you know you were just such a woman with a glittering career you had such confidence I remember seeing you talk in UCD you owned that room and um, you owned your thoughts you had so much to say and you were so convinced uh, of the that you wanted other people to hear this and, and to respond to this and to know that this is a woman running around having panic attacks and has issues in her own family that that, re that really surprised me about you what, what well, made you, I, you know to address that well, well let me just say that the, res the the most heartening part of the response to putting it out there and in a way just sort of making your point for you is the number of individuals men and women alike who i thought you know, wouldn't have anything necessarily to identify with in that portion of the book, who might be interested in Obama and what he's really like behind the scenes yeah. and, you know, some of the gossip, or maybe they like a good romantic story. I try to offer that as well. Yeah. But the number of people who say, you know, I lost my father at a young age and I carry such guilt. And by reading about the guilt that you were carrying that you didn't process till much later, I've now gone to therapy and I'm trying to, I mean, it's yeah. so gratifying. It's amazing. Right. And, and, or just, you know, I also have, in fact, this happened to me when I was in Dublin doing media for the book, two of my favorite other Dublin journalists um, sat me down for a radio interview and one of them, and she may be watching and she knows who she is, but I don't want to out her, but she said, I have lungers, I, which is my, ex-boyfriend's name for this breathing yeah. thing that I had when I was yeah. very young in part, I think, because I was uh, suppressing some of my anguish over my dad's drinking and dying very suddenly and so yeah. forth. And this really well-known Irish journalist is like, I have lungers, but I never knew what to call it and and uh, and so forth. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's to create a humanity to the enterprise. And again, when I was younger, the books about people who went into public service or who were diplomats or who tried to make a difference wherever, mm -hmm. um, they didn't show all of that. And and so I, I think that one's own sense of whether one belongs is colored by what one thinks people who've come before are like. Um, so I try to make it as much as human and as real as, as, as I can. You mentioned your dad, Jim, and the, the separation from him, obviously a dreadful thing to happen to any child and then his loss after that. What do you think when you think about him today and how much of who you are as an idealist do you think he's had a role in shaping? Wow, um, that's such a complicated question. I'd say, you know, when I was after my dad, my dad we came to America when I was nine. My dad died when I was 14 in what to me was very sudden, but he'd been, I learned later, had deteriorating a lot uh, with the drink and so forth. Um, but when I would go back, let's say in high school or even in my early 20s, and I'd get these snippets from, you know, his sister or my cousins or friends of his from Hardigan's Pub in Dublin. And I, I'd, I'd, you know, sort of piecing together as I get older, the, the features of his life that would not have been yeah. noteworthy to me as a kid, right? As a kid, you just, you know, will he play tennis with me in the cul-de-sac? Yeah. You know, will he buy me my Fanta? Is he there? Is he present? Uh, you know, does it do, does his face shine when he, when he looks at me or I show him a drawing or that's what mattered to me then. But as I got older, other yeah. things mattered and, and his 
uh, those who loved him were very responsive to my questions. And so I would, I learned things later, like that when he would go to Hardigan's, he would go with a stack of newspapers, including the British newspapers, like the Telegraph. Uh, and, yeah. and, and he would just tear through them and sound off with opinions on current affairs. And I was totally shocked because my, I was single way into my late thirties. My favorite thing to do was to go to like the local bar, have the baseball game on in the background and have the stack of newspapers, which I would go through. And I wouldn't sound off with quite the same uh, dogmatism, I think, as my dad. But, uh, but who, who knows, you know, where, what, what, it, what seeps in, you know, that you're not even thinking you're paying attention to. Uh, but that interest in the world he always had, um, interest in sport for sure. And then the complexity of your question is, you know, what a therapist would say is I got into human rights because I failed to save my dad and, you know, wanted to go save other people. And, you know, I, I don't know about that. I think there are plenty of reasons to get into human rights that don't mm -hmm. require childhood trauma <laughs> to, to motivate you to do it. But, but I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I've heard that from enough people who have advanced degrees that I suppose I can't, I can't rule it out. But, um, but I, you know, I think I, I, I just wish he was around. I mean, that's the main thing. Still, it, that never goes away. The, the desire to share something that's happened or discuss something. I, I, all these years later, still have. So, no, a grief doesn't go away. But as you get older and being a mum as well, and we'll move on and talk about politics now in a minute. But your perspective on it, it, it as you say it's it's the light shifts and you're looking at it a different way and it's a different picture you know and and hopefully one i i hope for you now and i get the sense from the book that's that's kinder for yourself yeah i mean writing the book helped i i because it was a painful topic um you know, I, I never really wanted to engage my my mother, who, uh, you know, mercifully is still not only with me, but working as a medical doctor yeah. still in her mid 70s in in New York and, and was got to see her for the first time in, in the yeah. COVID months uh, last week. Um, and she's such a force in my, my kids live lives. But I, you know, writing the book was like I became a reporter to my own story. So I kind of could justify to myself bringing up a painful topic and 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 so I learned things, and and I think that there was some healing in that. But mainly, as you say, with my own kids, I think when you are a child, you you almost think you have superpowers in the face of forces like alcoholism yeah. uh, that are that are so much bigger than you. And now, when I look at my my daughter uh, and who's eight, and my son who's eleven, I, I realize I was so young. I mean, I see how young they are. And yet when I was that age, I was ascribing to myself an ability to do things that were that are unthinkable. So, so yeah, you, you get perspective yeah. uh, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the perspectives you learned from your time in with Obama and at the UN, um, and particularly for somebody who was an idealist, who was so passionately uh, committed to the cause of human rights and who was there at a time when uh, despite the best intentions, it seems Obama failed and Putin and Assad ended up winning, really, didn't they? I think if you judge the Obama presidency through the Syria prism, right, you'll get one verdict. But I would encourage people to be, uh, you know, yeah. a little, uh, to see a little more of the full field. I mean, it was a very, 
I'm, and I believe me, I write about Syria. I'm not making excuses. I think it was very hard to get right. Uh, I think we did invest. I mean, there's no no foreign policy issue that Obama spent more time yeah. on, but also where we had made, as you suggest, made made fewer inroads. But I would look at it, you know, again differently, and to say, well, you know, look at the extent to which uh, Obama reinvigorated American diplomacy like opening ties with Iran uh, to secure the nuclear deal. Look at the way he uh, so understood the extent to which our fates were connected to the fates of people living elsewhere that he bucked even Democrats in his own party to build a military-led coalition to deal with Ebola in West Africa, but but did the uh, thing with that, which was to leverage the U.S. commitment in order to get other countries to do far more. I don't have to contrast it with the present and the pandemic and the sort of uh, insane decision to lead the WHO to, to take note of the fact that that was an example, I think, of how American power has to be leveraged in the 21st century for, for good and for good that is recognized as mattering for people, quote unquote, over there in, in that instance in West Africa, mm-hmm. but for good that ultimately, because we are so connected, as COVID shows again, uh, good over there that has bearing on on the welfare of Americans. In normalizing ties with Cuba, uh, again, uh, some something that that there was a big taboo around. And I, I think what's unfortunate is just as those investments in diplomacy were being made, just as there was a recognition of how much it would take a long time, but how much the United States could get done not by bombing its way to certain outcomes, uh, but again, by by investing in using its soft power to, to achieve uh, at least breakthroughs, if not you know overall uh, transformations of different places. Uh, but at just the time that that might've been continued and deepened, of course, we've gone in a completely um, uh, insane and backwards direction, which we'll get to, I know. I, I know, and we're, we're, we're coming on to that. Uh, tell me, you think then what's at stake in this election? What's at stake? Yeah. I mean, let's start. Let's start with the sort of baseline. Human life is at stake. Two hundred thousand people have died in a country with no, more Nobel prizes in science and medicine than the rest of the world combined. With the home of Silicon Valley, the home of the Centers for Disease Control, that is. The has been the gold standard in terms of how you deal with public health calamities. And we can't, we have a thousand people dying every day. Uh, and COVID was going to come, right? That's not Trump's fault, but how he's handled it has, is going to be, uh, you know, in textbooks hundreds of years from now uh, as, as exhibit A of how to deny science, how to reject expertise, how to put also bizarrely, even from the standpoint of his own interests, but some weird sort of short-term sort of perceived self-interest political gain, right, of downplaying it for his own sake so it wouldn't mess up the economy in the very, very short term, but also just really dumb from the standpoint of his own political uh, standing, because if you downplay it and mishandle it, it's going to last longer and cause more pernicious economic effects um, uh, for the people that you're trying to bring to your side. So uh, so the stakes are human life. The stakes, I think, are America's place in a uh, leadership role in the world. Note I didn't say leading the world because China 
is certainly fill the vacuum that Trump has left and it's not going anywhere no matter who the next president yeah. is. Uh, but I think human rights around the world, uh, recognizing all of, uh, which we won't have time to get into, but the mistakes that America's made, the, the hypocrisy, of course, uh, in, in American foreign policy as it relates to human rights over the years, you can stipulate all of that. And it is still the case that China now working within the UN is seeking to right now erode, and I think over time potentially even do away with human rights norms that are sometimes all that citizens in repressive countries have to turn to. So if you take the people of Belarus, national law doesn't help them right now. What helps them is a set of standards about how you should be treated, due process, right to be free from torture, right to have a free and fair election. These are international standards that were 75 years in the making that China, because it doesn't practice any of that, uh, you know, would like nothing more than to chip away at. And so to not have America's leverage used at a minimum in a defensive position on behalf of those norms, but to see if there were four more years of Trump in much the same way that China uh, yeah. is seeking to row those norms, Trump attacking journalists, uh, you know, calling on troops to, to uh, you know, militarizing the response to peaceful protest, um, encouraging President Xi to build concentration camps for the Uyghurs, having a Muslim ban, stripping nation of immigrants from the U.S. citizenship yeah. and, and nationalizations. Or, you know, we don't have to go on, but, but imagine yeah. four more years of what that does to those standards in the world. Like what, whatever about America and, and the rights of uh, people of color and, of, and, and the growing inequality and the tax cuts for the rich and all of that, but what does it mean to not have the United States uh, defending human rights norms, even their existence uh, in at the UN and beyond? Many people would, would call that an appalling vista. Let me ask you this question. Um, the polls in 2016 said Hillary would win. The polls in 2020 are saying Biden will win. Do you believe them? Um, I, I have post-traumatic stress and it will never be the same <laughs> and will never, will never, uh, ever, uh, be, I don't want to say trust poll, but, but be complacent about polls or, or trust only polls. Let me put it that way. I think what's noteworthy about the polls, knowing how many in your audience are watching them maybe as carefully as I am in some cases, but, um, yes. is they're quite stable. They are quite stable. Uh, there is not the kind of fluctuation you saw in 2016. You haven't seen a big so-called bounce out of Trump's, uh, not only his Republican convention, but also ad has spent uh, eviscerating Biden and portraying him as a tool of the radicals and so forth. You, you're not seeing so far many inroads. Um, what's noteworthy also, I think about 2020, Anya, is the memory of 2016 is very real for voters. Yeah. So recall that 7% of the people who voted for Obama in 2012 stayed home in 2016. Now, for some, that was, and we're that's millions of voters in an election that was settled by 78,000 votes spread across three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, just because of our weird system. So it was a 78,000 vote margin, millions stayed home, partly out of protest. They weren't crazy, let's say maybe about uh, yeah. uh, Senator Clinton, Secretary Clinton, but partly because they saw the same polls and they thought, ah, it's raining. 
I got to pick up the kids. Yes. I'm not going to wait in that line. You know, they've yeah. closed the polling stations to try to disenfranchise voters. I'm going to stay home. So that's going to be less of a factor. And the other thing that happened in uh, in uh, that explains uh, the flip, you know, in particularly uh, non-college educated whites uh, uh, and so forth, is that they voted for third party candidates. And you are not like, again, often as a protest vote, yeah. kind of saying, I know Hillary's going to win, so I don't, I'm not going to have Trump as president, but I get to feel that I'm not validating, let's say, some yeah. dimension of Secretary Clinton that I'm not crazy about. You're not going to see anywhere near, uh, you know, those, there, there may be people on the ballot in different states here or there, but because, as you say, of the memory of 2016, uh, nobody's going to take those polls at, at, at face value. And it also that leads to a question about the Democratic Party, because the one thing that Joe Biden has done this time is he's built a coalition between, if you like, the Sanders groups, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they're all rowing in behind, and Elizabeth Warren and other people who are seen as more moderate. Is that a coalition that can win at the polls? Because that's the key question for the Democrats, is can they deliver at the polls this November when, you know, you've got all kinds of, you know, court judgments about getting the Green Party on the ballot in Wisconsin and what that'll do to mail-in voting, Kanye West, Trump, you know, giving out about mail-in voting and, you know, the possibility of hacking most of campaigns, but also of machines. I mean, it's, it's quite a vista. <laughs> you and your vistas. <laughs> um, let me, let, let me, let me, uh, let me come to the Democrats, but say maybe just one more word about, about Trump and, and his vulnerability, because, Again, I think there's plenty to point yeah. to that's alarming and that we can worry about. Uh, but you definitely much prefer to be Biden uh, on September we now 12th, uh, 2020, than to be Trump uh, in terms of where we are. So just to, to point to a few of the features of, of Trump's polling that, that would worry him, and we're not in the, in the business generally, you or I, of putting ourselves in Trump's shoes, but... Yeah. Uh, just for this, the sake of of understanding his psyche and also where he might go and what he might do in these next weeks, so he has really slipped among suburban women. Uh, that the question of where suburban women go um, is uh, still very much on the ballot, in insofar as there are many undecideds. Uh, but he's way down compared to where he was uh, against Secretary Clinton, so that's noteworthy. I think that has a lot to do with healthcare, um, a lot to do with the handling of the pandemic, but also something to do with the fact that the there's a recognition of how vulnerable the Supreme Court is with Ruth Bader Ginsburg now ill again, uh, and again, yeah. how much people are following the ins and outs of that, but that could be another seat and, and really yeah. freedom of choice, which Ireland has just been through its own process, you know, uh, sort of realizing that right uh, for, for women across your country, uh, freedom of choice is on the ballot. And everybody, I think, recognizes that. So that might explain some of Trump's dip among suburban women. The more striking uh, dip is among the elderly, the over 65s. And that, I think, is linearly about COVID and about you know, just the most vulnerable age group, just looking and saying, well, four more years of this, uh, especially with, with so far no vaccine in sight. So he would be very worried about, about the slippage there. He also should be very worried that in the swing states, uh, he's not really very close to, to 50%. And with no third party candidates, 
in most of those states, you're going to have to get quite near out over the 50% threshold. So it's one thing to look and see, okay, Biden's only up by four, yeah. let's say in Wisconsin. But it's another thing to note that Trump is maybe seven, eight points away from 50. And it's not as if people are going to learn new things about Trump. Uh, you know, he's, he's an incumbent. Yeah. So the incumbent has the advantage of being exposed and, and having that, the, the, the pulpit and so yeah. forth. But that's not always a good thing, depending how the incumbent is using the, the pulpit. So those are the things he would worry about. I think you put your finger on it things that Democrats uh, should worry about, particularly as it relates to voter suppression, uh, voter disenfranchisement, uh, underfunding the post office such that we don't have people working overtime to get ballots yeah. to people on time or to receive ballots and have them processed on time. This is hugely worrying. But the other demographic things to worry about are right now Biden is polling under Trump. Uh, excuse me, of course, uh, Biden is polling under where Secretary Clinton was with African-Americans. And he's still ahead of Trump with Hispanics, but actually quite significantly under where Secretary Clinton was with Hispanics. So you mentioned the coalition and Biden has done really a magnificent job aided by Trump yeah. uh, for sure. And the desire to unite against Trump, but Biden really just using that kind of bonhomie and the, the Irish, you know, sort of glad handling old, old school Paul, uh, listening, you know, he's done really a great job uniting the different strands of the Democratic Party, the very far left strand mm -hmm. with the, the more moderate uh, centrist stand, uh, strand, but hasn't, I think we haven't yet seen, and he's going to want to use the next 55 days to bring those numbers up among Hispanics and, and African Americans. And, and of course, with the entire with the entirety of his base, whoever they are, whatever their demographic, wherever they are, uh, turnout, of course, is an enormous uh, part of this picture. So you want to, you know, have people, Trump is doing his part by, you know, getting away from his own message, by having yeah. to answer the latest Bob Woodward charges and what insult did he heap at the military? And, you know, did he deliberately play down the pandemic? Yeah. Every day that Trump is in a news cycle where he's defending himself about something he did before or didn't say, that's uh, a day he's not driving home what appears to be yeah. his main message against Biden, which is a law and order message, which itself isn't proving as impactful as one as many of us might have feared when he started this now about a month ago. And it may be not impactful uh, because people know that this is Trump's America where the law and order issues have arisen. And so it's hard to say, you know, if you want America to look like uh, Portland, you know, elect Joe Biden, meaning if you want to see protests and violence yeah. and so forth, when we're now in Trump's America. So there's an inherent inconsistency yeah. in his message. But it may be that that actually won't matter. And what's mattering right now is he's not staying on message uh, because he's on his heels uh, through the chaos of his presidency. Yeah. And in many ways, this election is a referendum on Donald Trump, the Republican convention, you know, there's no platform. The platform is Donald Trump uh, and his family and, and the agenda, you know, is so far from what was traditionally seen as the Republican Party. And just your perspective in a binary system on what has happened to the grand old party and, and what happens because, you know, Trump isn't going to go away no matter what happens uh, in November. Yeah, I think that's probably the darkest dimension of the of the current moment. Well, you know, 
uh, uplifted by civic activism in America, horrified by police violence, but you know, moved by the stances taken, including boycotts by professional athletes, um, you know, kind of mainstreaming of a set of issues that were seen as marginal for too long. There's a lot to be kind of encouraged about the latest polling, even if we don't, we'll never take it to the bank, is encouraging the contestation, not by, um, Repub- I'll come to the Republican Party in Washington in a second, but uh, yeah. not only by Democrats and others of these tactics around suppressing uh, the the vote by mail, you know, the the attempts to to do away with uh, voting processing machines at the post office. There hasn't just been pushback by by uh, Democrats or by Democratic uh, elected representatives and by citizens. Actually, Republican governors, uh, you know, have come out when Trump says don't vote by mail. It's all a fraud. They're like, no, no, vote by mail, vote by mail, yeah. please. We've always yeah. voted by mail. Like, don't. And so there's a so you know, I think I think and and on the COVID handling, the coronavirus handling, you've seen, for example, in Ohio, a Republican governor, my state, Massachusetts, has done better than most after a rough surge yeah. in the spring and uh, we have a republican governor so so i don't i don't want to cast everybody with the same brush but even those that the, what this is what passes civic courage you know is actually listening to the science on COVID. i mean it yeah. shows you how far from where we need to be we are if we're if we end up having to celebrate republican governors who are listening to the epidemiologists and public health professionals around them um, in terms of though the future uh, and your point that uh, you know Trump is is not going to go away, there are two dimensions to that one will he go away even if he loses? There's that whole set of fears. Yeah. Uh, maybe we crack it that uh, at least for now, maybe we'll come up in the in the audience portion. But then there's Trumpism and the kind of xenophobia and nationalism. The, the fact that such a large share of Americans get their news from Fox News, from these right-wing uh, uh, internet sites, the fact that we now have a fringe extremist movement, QAnon, that has been mainstreamed where we have actually elected representatives coming yeah. to the House of Representatives who are open supporters of QAnon, uh, you know, borderline neo-Nazi, white supremacist mainstreaming. And all of that is 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 going to be with us. Now I'd say though that if you if then this isn't uh, there's no guarantee that this will happen. But if everybody turned out, if everybody got their ballots in on time, if everybody not only voted by mail but voted as soon as their ballot arrived, so as to let some of the hijinks to minimize the odds that uh, def- you know underfunding the post office would make a difference. And this, these are the messages now out of Biden and, and Democratic leaders and actually many Republicans who need, again, those mail-in ballots. Uh, but if you saw the kind of turnout that we are capable of, if people are motivated enough um, and, and turnout, again, that has in mind the hurdles that stand in the way, so accommodate those hurdles, rather than you know turn out at the last minute how many of us normally operate um you could i mean it's not it's not beyond the realm of reason that you could see a repudiation not only of donald trump the man but of trumpism and i think there would have to be a very significant margin and we can debate maybe what that margin would have to be but for trump to accept defeat in the first instance yeah, uh, you know, definitely in the swing states. You know, if it's if it's a matter of tens of ten thousand votes, as it was in the last election, or nineteen thousand votes here or there, 
Trump will contest. But also if it's those margins, I don't think you'll see the Republican Party change, even if he loses and and uh, leaves office. If by contrast, you see what's in the polls right now, which is four and five percent differentials in those critical swing states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You've seen if you see non-college educated whites mm. return to the Democratic Party because they see that the Republican Party is no good for working people. Uh, if you see states like Texas and Georgia, which are now on the map, Joe Biden is spending money yeah. on ads in states that have never been in play. Uh, in my, you know, living memory, uh, 55 days before the election for a Democratic presidential candidate. If you start to see not even Biden win those elections, but really, uh, you know, draw a, a close margin in Georgia, like Stacey Abrams did in the governor's race, yes. then if you're a re self-interested Republican politician like Marco Rubio, you have to ask yourself, who sees himself as a flag bearer of the future, you have to ask yourself, you know, do I want to go back to being the old Marco Rubio, who was an internationalist, who believed in NATO, who was a shepherd of immigration reform, not somebody who, uh, you know, sucked up to a president that wants, to, you know, virtually end immigration of educated people and offering mm -hmm. America as a place of refuge for people in need. That kind of margin would have to cause a rethink, at least among among those Republicans who live in states that that are more purple, you know, that have the possibility of going blue as Florida, for example, where Marco Rubio is from does. So so this is a lot to ask of the voters, but it is to say that it's another reason just not to listen to the polls and, and for us to be using every day between now uh, and November 3rd, um, you know, to, to, to activate, uh, to, 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 to convince those swing voters to go in Biden's direction and to turn out communities that do go traditionally Democrat, but are, are the communities that Trump is trying to convince that their vote won't count, that their vote won't matter. And we have to somehow offset that in our, in our messaging. Um, to talk about race and Black Lives Matter, but before we do, how critical is it that Biden wins a majority in the Senate? Because, I mean, you saw Obama struggle with Republican control, not, you know, effectively hamstringing his administration at every opportunity. If Biden wins and he doesn't have the Senate, can he deliver? It'll be very challenging. It'll be much more challenging. Um, I mean, there's still an awful lot, especially as it relates to foreign policy, that is in the hands of the chief so I don't want to I don't want to minimize the importance of the presidency right it's a pretty important job uh, in and of itself and you know Obama operated and got a lot done in the world particularly internationally even when he wasn't in control of the Senate toward the end of his time in office uh, but to do anything meaningful legislatively so for example you know California's on fire as we sit here um, you know, I have friends who, uh, a friend of mine was, was noting yesterday that he was struck by the, the glow on his young daughter's, beautiful young daughter's face. And he was sort of, in, you know, sort of saying, wow, she looks especially beautiful, but you know, my, my seven-year-old today. And then he realized it was actually the, the reflection of the flames in the distance on her face that was causing her face to, to shine. And, and that's just anecdotal, just some random friend of mine. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know. So three million acres uh, have been gobbled up. The prior wildfire record in that area was 200,000 acres, which was, I think, set last year. So climate, you know, Green New Deal, not Green, Green New Deal, whatever we need to get across uh, the, the starting line, even it must feel like to the rest of the world, but the finish line uh, legislatively 
is going to require a Senate majority. But Anya, it's not only going to require that, it's going to require ending uh, the best check Democrats have against Republican uh, mischievous, devastating legislation, which is the filibuster, where we now have to do major legislation in in our country for a very long time. It's required a 60-vote threshold. So even if Democrats uh, get 51 or 52 Senate seats, we're, we're not going to be close to 60. So I think there'll be yeah. a lot of pressure on Biden to, to end the filibuster, which I would expect him to do, but he will do so with a heavy heart, knowing that just demographically, the Senate is very vulnerable to Republican rule uh, because of the way the states are set up and how many red states yeah. we have, uh, you know, as a matter of course. But yes, the Senate's hugely important. I mean, if Biden were to preserve the kinds of leads he has now, and if we were to get the kind of turnout we seek, we have gone from being from having very slim odds uh, to taking the t- to the Senate to because of COVID and and health and the economy yeah. being the number one and two issues on people's minds, to being in a you know to having now I think a sixty percent chance of of taking the Senate. But so those bar- Biden margins would also presumably translate into that that swing of of five seats, which is what yeah. we need. You've spoken a lot about demographics. We've all seen the absolutely staggering scenes on American streets um, that have erupted around the Black Lives Matter protests and and the the howl of outrage really that's coming from the black community, uh, their policing and their treatment um, in American society. Uh, Talk to me about, is this, you know, I've heard people say this is, you know, a new American civil war, or it's a civil war that's being played out as the white demographic shrinks. I'd be interested in your take on on that process of change and how to manage it politically. Well, this is where, again, as you noted, Trump remains a very dangerous uh, force in our in our politics. Trump and Trumpism, Fox News. Yeah. You know, you have Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. You know, stirring people up. But to have a president who refuses to condemn an act of vigilante violence like that carried out by this 17-year-old who drove from Illinois to Wisconsin and shot two people who ended up uh, dying, and the, the president of the United States doesn't condemn that, him being out of office uh, doesn't make him lose his Twitter account. <laughs> Uh, I hope that Twitter will be uh, more discerning about his tweets and his incitement to violence and the lies that he propagates there that, for example, in the COVID context, are uh, dangers to to people's health. I wish they would enforce, uh, again, their policies more routinely uh, on somebody who has whatever it is, 80 million uh, Twitter followers. But, you know, he will still have that capacity to stir people up, and it's very dangerous. I, You know, my again, my hope is that there will be some reckoning in the Republican Party more broadly, where the, that voice will be contested. My hope is that he and those like him uh, will be seen in the wake of an unsuccessful election, uh, you know, as more marginal, as kind of losers, you know, fundamentally for having lost the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Trump, much of Trump's aura and his and his magic with that uh, his base you know comes from this idea of winning and 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 so forth so anyway I, I i think that that slice of america has existed we've had joe mccarthy we've had george wallace we've had very divisive figures we've had southern senators 
you know, arguing, you know, to the bitter end uh, to maintain segregation, opposing the Voting Rights Act. I mean, that strand in American politics has been with us a long time. I think what's what's new is young people, white people, <laughs> you know, uh, young African-Americans at the vanguards of the protests, um, young white people hand in hand in them being not only horrified, but mystified uh, by the use of race. I mentioned a 17 year old, of course, who is a QAnon uh, supporter. So it's not all young people, but, um, but I do think that there is generational change that is happening. Certainly the urban rural divide uh, is one that is um, very unfortunate on some of these questions, at least, uh, you know, how that breaks down. What you will see in a Biden presidency, if we're lucky enough to get there, though, is, you know, precisely the opposite of what you see from Trump. I mean, an attempt to unify these communities where Trump seeks to divide, that's obvious. But also in Biden's case, I think not giving up on the Fox News viewer. And I'd be really surprised if he didn't sort of seek to go into the belly of the beast, I think it's going to be very challenging for him because again, of where, what those people are being fed. Uh, and, and really it is outright lies, um, uh, including about Biden himself, right. Which could be just inherently disqualifying, Mm -hmm. but he is not going to give up, uh, on anybody. And he's going to try to govern, I think for everybody and reach people with his message and try to to the belly of the beast and, 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 you know, do some healing. So we, we we will see again what headway can be made. The one the one, you know, unfortunate, unfortunate, unfortunate. The one feature of uh, policing that that really one has to sort of stress is that Biden's role. Yes, there are things that can be done at a federal level, including through legislation. Yeah, but a lot of his power will come from his voice. This these issues are addressed mainly at the state and local level. And so this is where um, Republicans more broadly taking their cue from what happens in the election, having an election set of results that causes everyone to say, well, wait, you know, am I, as, as Lyndon Johnson once said, you know, I think to George Wallace, you know, am I one who wants to burn or to build? <laughs> and, and right now, too many people are agnostic on, on the answer to that question. Yeah. And I want to talk about then the challenge that would face, you know, say even Biden did win the presidency, say even he did win the Senate and he, he was able to uh, fulfill the mandate that he wanted to. Um, as you say, Trumpism is unlikely to go away. The damage that has been done after four years at home and abroad and the weight of expectation that he's going to be carrying, you know, to deliver. Um, solutions to very complex problems that can't be solved overnight. So as an idealist um, who learned a lot along the way, uh, what, what, what would you say the priorities should be the, the, and how he should go about it? Internationally, specifically, or? Yeah. Let's start with internationally and then we'll move on to the domestic. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, you know what, I don't know, I answer my own question because the foundation for what we do globally, um, so priority no- number one is get our own house in order, which of course is not going to happen in four years. We're not going to combat systemic racial injustice and, you know, have police forces around the land, um, you know, respect the rights of uh those who are being detained and you know, that's not going to happen in an instant, yeah. but, but even the act of 
having an American president back in a constructive role, uh, using his convening power in the way we were just talking about, you know, that's not nothing. Uh, an American president who returns to uh, respecting science, who, who builds out uh, the diplomatic core and, and the expertise therein, which has been ravaged under Trump, but, but the scientific core that undergirds yeah. the Environmental Protection Agency, the Centers for Disease Control, um, you know, the, the, I mean, probably, I think Fintan O'Toole wrote this m more eloquently than just about anybody, actually, uh, in, the, in actually what is now the early months of the COVID pandemic. But, you know, the damage that America leading the world in COVID deaths because of America leading the world in mishandling of COVID, yeah. the damage that has done, it just, you know, more than pulling out of the Iran deal or even the Paris Agreement. I mean, just in terms of America's clout. Um, and it's summoning power, which is what's so important globally. So, so start yeah. with the kind of foundational steps that will have to be taken to deal with COVID, uh, to deal with all the crises in America, the health crisis, the economic crisis, the racial crisis, the inequality crisis. Steps in all of those directions are, those are sort of priority one. And then uh, I think, you know, the world is burning. And, you know, it's, it's very sad to say that, you know, what we're seeing in California and what Sub-Saharan Africa has been seeing now for uh, a decade in, in, in a way that actually fuels conflict, fuels displacement, which in yeah. turn fuels xenophobia and nationalism and all, you know, so many of the ills come back to climate. And, and so that's frontline. Rejoining Paris, of course, is something we do on the first day, but that's symbolic what matters is because domestic regulations uh, you know going to get going back on clean power plants uh, where Obama had been going back on fuel economy you know getting carbon clean by by 2035 I think it's truly significant that Biden's entire economic recovery plan is rooted in a clean energy strategy because it's you know it's always been seen even in democratic circles as zero sum where you care about climate, so you want it, you, you're prepared to take from, from the economy and you're prepared to regulate, but this is different. This is a positive sum approach to, mm. to building back better. But that domestic leadership, again, on climate is the foundation for then going to other countries and saying, okay, China, you've done a hell of a lot better than us in meeting your Paris commitments uh, you know, from 2015 domestically, but where was it in the Paris Agreement that said you could build coal plants as part of the Belt and Road Initiative? That wasn't in the small print. Like, what the hell have you been doing? You're, you're, you know, this is, you know, not going to be net positive if what you're doing is making other countries carbon dependent in terms of their development. So that's foundational. And then, since I'm on the topic, but also because it's the most important relationship in the world, the relationship with China, just getting that on a stable footing, which does not mean uh, a fully accommodating footing by any means, because uh, competing with China is is going to be critical again domestic investments are going to have far more to do with whether we can succeed in that endeavor over time uh than anything we say trump is all about rhetoric and sanctions and so forth but that's not helping us with infrastructure and innovation uh domestically so there'll be competition there'll be confrontation on human rights questions for sure and on unfair trade practices but there also better be collaboration uh, because I know from my old stomping ground, you can't get one uh, regulation, as it were, or, or one resolution through the UN Security Council uh, without yeah. the US and China uh, accommodating one another, either abstaining or voting for 
we can't get the climate cooperation, as we indicated, that we need without uh, there being a major sort of great power compact at the center of what happens globally. So that's going to require collaboration. Um, so that, that that's where I'd start, domestic, uh, climate, and the, the China relationship. Of course, let me just make one last point. The vehicle for being effective in standing up to China on the issues where that needs to happen and mm-hmm. getting the right deals done in international institutions, uh, given that China wants to go off in another direction, for example, on technology and surveillance or on control of the internet. The key to all that will be strong coalitions of democracies. And so nothing that I've described uh, in the international space can get done without restoring and and really reinvigorating our alliances, including with our Irish friends, but really with Europe in the Pacific, with Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, these are these alliances are in tatters. Um, and so, you know, you can't even think about being effective vis-a-vis China at the UN or anywhere else unless we're singing from from the same hymn yeah. book as democracies. And indeed, Fintan too, writing about the way the world, I mean, once America, you know, the shining city on the hill, now the world looks at America with pity. The, the idea yeah of, that that was the piece it, it isn't living yeah, up to exactly. itself in, in, in any way shape or form as many people would have seen it at the moment listening to you you sound like a determined idealist are you determined to get back in there and do more on all of these issues i mean i think the feeling that so many of us have i mean you people in ireland feel this the same way people in family there you know we all feel so small next to these, and I'm in America, former cabinet official, blah, blah, blah. Like I feel yeah. so small as a citizen. And so I think any time, I mean, I, I, I race, you know, when, when I, I get an email in my inbox from the Biden campaign saying, can you do a fundraiser or can you talk to this girl? I'm like, yes, yes, anything. Can I do anything? Sure. Anything to make me feel less idle, yeah. uh, you know, in the face of, in the face of all this. So I think we're all going to be looking to see what we do, but let me, let me, just take note on the on the idealist front, you know, because it's in a way it can sound like are you a utopian or something? I mean, I'm I'm very I, I think clear eyed about all that stands in the way, both of Biden winning and of America's recovery and of frankly the picture for human rights around the world in light of China's rise and with all of its economic leverage. But so my idealism comes from: Do you like the world is? Or do you like where it seems like it's going right now? Do you, do you like the, the the temperature rises and the sea rise, you know, the rising seas? And if not, then you have something in mind that is a set of ideals against which you're measuring the present, right? And so I think all of us, even if not many people want to embrace the term because somehow it sounds, you know, too airy fairy or something, but um, but we're all idealists now. Uh, at least I hope. Have, have I frozen? Sorry, Samantha. I, did I, I freeze? Happened. You you did freeze. Did I freeze? There. <clears throat> Very briefly, yes. But anyhow, you're you're unfrozen and, okay. and looking fantastic. No, actually, I, I, I <laughs> when you were t- when I when meant about idealism. Just to finish up on this, and I'll hand it over to the audience down a minute. Sorry, I've kept you for too long. But it it's, it it reminded me of Obama. There's a way of kind of being an idealist that's about courage and hope and determination and getting up every. It, that strikes me as sorry. That's what I meant. I wasn't taking issue with it when I was saying I actually think we're all. I think right now we're all idealists because none of us are. I mean, none of us. 
but even 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 people on the other side issues, right? That it's do you, are you happy with the world as it is? You know, if if so, like hey, yay for the status quo, right? But if you think that we can do better and that we must do better, I think I think that's where that's what idealism is. And and I suppose the last thing is, do each of us have a role to play, however modest? Um, you know, to believe that I think also means you're an idealist. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to this particular idealist. It really is. I'm going to hand you over to the audience. I recommend, by the way, that everybody goes and reads the book because it's absolutely fantastic. Samantha Power, the very best of luck to you. From my point of view, thank you so much. And I'll hand you over to the thank audience. Thank you, Anya. Thank you. Look forward to being in Dublin soon and saying hello in person. Okay. I hope. If my American passport will ever allow me again. <laughs> I know, I know. Come back, we want you here. I have to dust off the Irish one, yeah. <laughs> Do we have any questions from Galway? So, Samantha, we have a couple of questions here from our online audience. Um, so the first question is, if Joe Biden wins, what are the key things he needs to address in his first 100 days in office? Well, I, I bet that question came in before the, the tail end of my discussion with Anya, but maybe I'd just add that there are a set of symbolic things, you know, for example, not even merely symbolic, but but that I think would matter uh, globally and matter hugely domestically, uh, particularly to, to people of color and people of different faiths, uh, you know. Um, so revoke the Muslim ban on day one. I mean, what a, what a <laughs> horrific uh, racist signal uh, to send in your first week as Trump tried to do it. Also, by the way, his version, you know, his Muslim ban had typos in it. You know, it hadn't been vetted by lawyers. It was struck down by courts. Luckily, thanks to some bottom-up incredible uh, legal work uh, by volunteer lawyers across the country. So we were able to actually 21,000 people into the country even after Trump tried to issue it. But that revoking of that, the rejoining of Paris, the rejoining of the World Health Organization at the height of a pandemic, uh, I mean, these are kind of basic things. The, the reinsertion of nation of immigrants in the citizenship uh, and immigration service mandate. Um, you know, transition in America starts way earlier now, uh, not only because it should, because we know how much damage Trump will have done uh, to so many dimensions of um, uh, American life. And so you'd need more time uh, to plan for coming into office. But actually, just by law, it starts a lot earlier. And so you will see, you know, again, a lot of measures prepared, including, for example, not just as we talked about, not just rejoining Paris, but making sure that you have your domestic regulations ready to go so that your companies and your power plants and so forth recognize that that it's it's our it's actually meeting our commitments domestically in terms of our Paris plan that we need to expedite. And so you may see since on Paris the intention, and I, I mentioned climate a lot because of its urgency, but also knowing how important it is in Ireland. Um, but recall that Paris was supposed to be a five-year set of uh, a five-year plan, and we were to come back together. It was supposed to be the floor, not the ceiling. We were to come back to five years hence, well, we've lost, America's lost uh, four of those five years. And um, and so out the gate, we'll need to do a set of things, but then we'll need uh, to be going, to be becoming much more ambitious in a much more accelerated way. Um, I think one of the things Biden has committed to also in the first hundred days that I haven't mentioned is a summit 
uh, actually, I should say in his first year, but it could happen early, uh, is a summit of democracies, uh, recognizing now how many of our fellow democracies are kind of hedging between the U.S. and China, uh, you know, on their heels a little bit, not sure whether American constancy is something they can rely on, whether America will be there in a pinch. And so that reassurance tour, even if it doesn't take the form of that summit in the first hundred days, and, and, and maybe that comes later in the year, but the reassurance tour, both by him and by his senior officials, I think would be a, a hugely important to laying the foundation then, for example, to trade agreements, you know, to climate work, yes. to cybersecurity partnerships, uh, to, you know, democratic coalitions on protecting our democratic infrastructure during elections, etc. And now, uh, do we have a question from the audience, our live audience in Galway? Hi there, thanks, thanks so much for the talk, it was fantastic. Um, Samantha, can I ask a kind of a double, a, I suppose a double question. Um, firstly, given the combativeness of Trump, which was apparent from way before he was even elected, were you surprised that Joe Biden emerged as the leading Democrat contender? And secondly, given, this is slightly crystal ball gazing, but given how well you know Obama, how do you think he would have figured against Trump? <laughs> Um, uh, goodness. Um, okay. So, uh, first on Biden, uh, you know, Biden was written off in after Iowa and New Hampshire and he was just very, it was very clear that, and it means very clear by the way, that young people were electrified by the more progressive wing of of the platform. I think what's what normally happens is that um, what normally happens is that uh, a candidate sort of leans left in the primary process in order to win the democratic base and then moves to the center uh, in the general. In the in the national election, I know you're talking about temperament, which I'll come to, and combativeness. But uh, it's really interesting that Biden sort of was himself uh, the sort of moderate, you know, Uncle Joe figure who'd collaborated with Republicans over the years at a time when, as we saw in those early primary states, people are not, you know, feeling very collaborative right now toward the Republican Party. He stayed himself. And because of the trust that he had won um, and just the years of relationship building, South Carolina was his um, Maginot line, right? It was, and he said from the beginning, like this is, if it's gonna work for me, this is how it's gonna work. And I think there's something, you know, kind of sort of beautiful about that. And, you know, sort of loyalty rewarded his relationships with people of color, particularly because it was the African-American vote that drove that huge victory in South Carolina. Um, and it was just as COVID, remember that primary victory was just as COVID, it was before COVID had shut down our economy, but just days really before it. And then what began to happen as the primary season progressed, because that didn't settle the matter, it was just one primary, uh, and, and Biden still showed vulnerabilities again with young voters, with Hispanic voters and so yeah. forth in the primary process. But with COVID, there just was no one uh, in the Democratic field who more conveyed the sort of empathy that people who are 
losing their jobs or losing loved ones, you know, need, there's no one with the experience of grieving that Biden has had personally, including really recently and really publicly with Bo's death. And so it was, and there was no one in the field who, again, on the axes seemed most salient in light of COVID where Biden, where, where there was no other candidate who so projected just in his being and his very sort of existence the antithesis of Donald Trump. So even though they are on paper have some things in common, they're older, they're white males, they're this, mm-hmm. that empathy, decency, and actually experience, right, of, of being in governmental positions, the very thing Trump ridiculed as being the elite in Washington and all that, but that juxtaposition ended up mattering an awful lot. And actually, you know, the number one sort of proxy question for how someone voted in the primary was in fact to your question not about combativeness or not combativeness but it was it was can can the candidate beat Donald Trump and in the early states sort of before these other issues became salient before these relationships you know and 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 his relationships with more diverse electorates Biden's long-standing relationships before those became relevant in South Carolina and after that uh you know, Biden initially, people in Iowa and so forth were skeptical. Did he have the energy? Was he still, you know? And and as the primary wore on, when you answer that question, the, the number one answer to that question correlates to who you're going to vote for. So people were, even people who didn't like Biden were thinking, he's the guy who's going to be Trump because he has all this experience, because he's a household name, because other voters are sexist and racist, you know, in other words, projecting onto others and then kind of, you end up internalizing sexist and racist, uh, you know, tenets and saying, you know, in, in your own thinking, because you, you're you so afraid after Hillary's defeat, uh, that sexism, again, may fell even a really capable, really empathetic, you know, female candidate. And so a lot, it was just Trump, because he was, is so motivating in this election, you know, really got people thinking in terms of the general earlier in the primary, you know, than, than, than we're used to seeing. And, and initially that didn't work for Biden. And then there was, it was like a, uh, uh, with COVID, the, the switch was flipped. In terms of Obama, you know, I think it would be, it's challenging for anyone. And, and September 29th is the big date between now and November 3rd that everybody should uh, on their calendars, um, at least in this country, but I know how much people are tracking there. So that's the first debate it's very challenging to debate somebody who doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> it's very challenging to debate somebody who does non sequiturs and, you know, these rants and riffs and, and, and who's so divisive, um, you know, and, you know, there's usually a question of sort of what, which Trump will, sh- you know, excuse me, there's usually a question, which candidate, which version of a candidate will show up. There's really no question. Trump was the same, person in each of his debates against Hillary Clinton. He was the same person in the Republican primary debates. He will be the same person. And it turns out he's the same person as president, as tweeter in chief, you know? So I think for Obama and for Biden, you know, it's very, it's it, it's like shadow boxing on one level. And you need strong moderators uh, because you need somebody to be fact-checking uh, what is said. And that did not happen nearly enough the last time around. Um, but at the same time, Obama likes to win and is a proven winner. Uh, so I think he would, he would have figured it out, but he wasn't crazy about debates anyway. 
Um, you know, he used to call them public colonoscopies, I think. Uh, so, so I think, uh, you know, it'd be challenging for any candidate, but I, but I have, I, I think Obama figures out what the, what the currency is and, and figures how to, out how to play in, in, in any currency. So I'd say he'd fare well, but it, but he wouldn't like it. I don't think anybody really likes it. Yeah. In many ways, in his own head, um, Trump is still running against Obama, isn't he? I mean, that seems to be his his obsession. The obsession, for- the obsession has yeah. not abated. And yeah. and note the Nobel, yeah. by the way, the Nobel Prize nomination allegedly that has come in, and you know, uh, which which I note that the the statements put out uh, by Trump supporters, some of them spelled Nobel, Noble, N O B L E. I think even an official statement spelled it that way. Uh, but but this Nobel obsession that he has, which which again, in lieu of running for the presidency and articulating what he would want to do for yeah. the American people, this is what he's been talking about all week. Uh, but it stems from Obama having won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he just can't get Obama out of his head, and and that could prove very useful actually to Biden uh, on stage because it it makes Trump even less rational than than he is on a good day. Yeah. It's it, it 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 heats him up in ways that divert him from what he needs to do. We're going to be glued to those television screens on the 29th, no matter we have. It'll be late at night there. (laughs) You can watch on tape. We'll still be watching. Watch the highlights in the morning. We'll be watching live. I know. It's, what can I say? It is such a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to see you in such a great form and looking so well and sounding so well and so happy. It really is. Thank you, Anya. And the very, very best of luck on my own behalf. I'll I'll hand you back to uh, the team in Galway now. Uh, to say whatever else needs to be said there. But Samantha Power, thank you and good luck. Thank you, Anya. Thanks for spending your part of your day this way. And thank you, Katrina. I know we'll hear from you now probably, but uh, thanks for just being such a force of nature. Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the Talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.